RP3 is ready to step his game up and pick up the mic for this edition of the Rap Game Podcast. Here is Raymond Parts III, a.k.a. RP3. Oh, welcome to the latest episode of the Rap Game Podcast. And you're in a special treat today because for the first time on the podcast, now we don't have that many episodes, disclaimer, we're actually going to be talking about rap music. Yes, we're going to break it down. Our favorites from the 1990s, my personal favorites, that was my golden era of rap music. It's when I got into it. It's when I fell in love with it. Hell, it's even the time where I had my own rap show on Junior College Radio up in Central Illinois. We're going to have a good time with this this topic on today's episode. And joining me to share his thoughts is one of the best in the business. He's host of Sports Overtime on WBOK, 1230 AM, every Tuesday and Thursday night. The New Orleans native himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Brian Bienemy. Brian, good morning to you, brother. How are you? Good morning, my man. I'm doing just fine. I mean, when I say excited to be on this episode, man, I feel like I'm in the top part of the bracket. I'm ready to go. Yes, top seed, ready to go make that run to the Final Four. Uh, look, man, let, let, let's get right to it. When did you first remember, like, kind of, like, falling in love with 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 rap music? And, and, and a disclaimer for some other folks, too, as KRS-One would educate us, Hip-hop is the culture, rap is the music. We'll go ahead and get that out of the way, get that education done, Brian, for everyone else. But let's move it forward. When did you first fall in love with rap music? When when do you remember? For me, it kind of was the origination of hip-hop, man. I'm an 80s baby, so I came right in with the Slick Ricks and the Dana Danes and, you know, these guys, man. So, you know, we had right past Grandmaster Flash and those guys, so I'm right in the heart of Eric B. Rakim, uh, you know, uh, you know, guys like that, man. So for me, it kind of like I was born into the rap culture, man, and of course hip hop, you know, in general. But it, you know, I fell in love. It's, I think my first favorite song might have been Slick Rick's Children's Story, and I can probably still recite that word <laughs> for word to this day. Uh, Slick Rick, the ruler. People have forgotten about him a little bit, which is kind of a shame. Uh, for me, yeah, you and I are the same age, Brian. I'm, I'm a year older than you, and. 80s baby as well and look I, I was exposed to it because I was not raised in a household with obviously rap music uh, I was raised in a household with the Gap Band and with Parliament but you know I was not raised in that type of household so MTV was kind of my thing of being exposed to rap music so obviously Run DMC, LL Cool J, Salt and Pepper, Eric B and Rakim and and of course Slick Rick as well but for me man when I really fell in love with it when it just kind of took over me so to speak i was living in new orleans in the west bank in gretna going to middle school and a guy that i lived in the neighborhood with gave me a mixtape that he made the old tdk tapes if you remember those and he he just noticed i'd listen to music like during gym class or, or whenever like that or when he'd be just beating on the desk and he's like hey i got this for you and i said great on one side it was public enemies it takes a nation of millions to hold us back and the other side was NWA straight out of Compton. And after I heard that, and I wore that tape out, Brian, after that, <laughs> it was a wrap, man. It was done. It was done. I, it was it, That did it for me. I still remember that moment 
listening to that tape on my cassette player over and over and over again, and it just blew my mind, and I was hooked after that, man. Now, you're talking about two different ends of the spectrum. You have Public Enemy with Fight the Power, Uplifting, Let's Go. Then you have NWA with, we'll just straight knock you out because we don't care. We're just that bad of dudes, man. So that's kind of like, I mean, far ends of the spectrum, but nonetheless, two great hip-hop groups, and, and I mean, both you can make a case for, man, you know, uh, I guess put rap where it's supposed to be because, of course, you have, you know, 911 as a joke, fight the power and everything that uh, Public Enemy was doing. Then you come back with N.W.A. and, you know, uh, uh, with, with Dr. Dre, Express Yourself, man, and, and of course, you know, N.W.A. with uh, with their music, man, you know, uh, Straight Outta Compton, that album was just, it changed things. I mean, it made people understand that. Rap was more than just, you know, let's party, let's have fun. They had a message to it, and I'm like, both of those guys really did, you know, both of those groups really did, you know, put rap on the map as far as, you know, putting a message to the music. Yeah, and it was, it kind of kicked off an era there in the late 80s, and it kind of went through the 90s for a while of kind of angry, uh, anti-establishment type of of rap music. I don't hear that anymore. I know I'm going to sound like the old man here, Brian. I get it. Uh, but I just, yeah, I just, I hear, I hear a lot of the music now, and everyone just sounds to be content. It just, where's the, where's the fire in the belly? Where's Karis One? Where's Chuck D? Where's Ice Cube? And I know, you know, being nostalgic here, I'm looking back, but, ah, man, with the exception of maybe like a Kendrick Lamar and some others, there's real no guys out there at the forefront of the genre trying to push its boundaries and trying to do things socially and talking about issues it seems like i don't know we're in this weird mode right now man where it just i don't know i I don't see i I don't hear a lot of guys out there right now that have a voice if that makes any sense no i totally understand where you're going with it and i'm not one of those guys that's going to hate on the mumble rap era if this is what we're going to call it when when you know the music doesn't really have a message it pretty much all sounds exactly the same it's like you could turn it on and it doesn't matter who you listen to or what the artist is you could pretty much just you know you can kind of tell it's all in the same effort of I'm really not going to talk about anything except the fact that I either take drugs and while I'm on drugs, I'm going to buy expensive cars and change because that's not a new thing. It's just the idea of nobody <laughs> actually having a no. contrast to it. I mean, you know, it's like Puff Daddy made it cool, you know, Puff Daddy and even here in New Orleans with the big timers and stuff like that. These guys, Jay-Z, of course, these guys made it cool to, you know, kind of floss the wealth that you got. All right, no problem. I mean, that, that's nothing new. It's just the idea that at least you had a balance and guys – like a Kendrick Lamar and maybe a J. Cole who are trying to put some type of, you know, message to the music, but they're far in between, man. I'm like, there's not enough guys like that. So I'm right there with you when it comes to, you know, basically, man, where's the, where's the real music? And they don't really have it anymore. They don't have it anymore. J. Cole is a good one. He's underrated as well. And look, there's, there are a couple of guys out there. But the 90s, man, for us, it was an interesting time because it went the entire spectrum and it was the first real decade for hip-hop culture, for rap music, where all three coasts, so to speak, were represented. And they all had their moments to shine, whether it was West Coast, East Coast, or down South. So we're going to break it down here. And I, I want to start with the, the West Coast because it really kind of took hold there in the early 90s. Obviously, you have Cube that goes solo and just blazes a trail and puts together a reign of LPs where you could argue he's one of the best MCs of all time. 
and he he's on that front, and then you also have two short that kind of comes out of Oakland, and he starts getting more and more commercial appeal with all the production by Ant Banks, and then of course Dre with the Chronic, and then Snoop with his solo career, The Murder Was a Case, the whole Death Row Records label, Tupac going full tilt West Coast, even though his beginnings were on the East Coast. When you look back now, you know, for the West Coast era of of rap during the 90s, what really stood out to you? What was the pivotal moment for you, especially early on in the decade? I think it was Ice Cube leaving NWA and not only leaving them, but basically wiping, you know, his feet on the way out on top of the, uh, it's almost like the, uh, the skit that, that Dave Chappelle does with, with Charlie Murphy and Rick James and he's just basically stumping mud all over the white couch. <laughs> That's exactly what Ice Cube did to NWA when he left. Like, do not play with that man as a lyricist. I mean, No Vaseline is probably the greatest diss song we've ever heard. And I know some people are going to say, hit him up. And, you know, there's, you know, Nasus Ether and all these other songs, man. There is probably not a greater diss song than No Vaseline. It was straight, raw, and uncut. Just I'm just going to put you all in a body bag and, and just, you know, kind of have fun doing it. That was probably the greatest moment of the West Coast. And I think it just... It basically just shows, man, like, you know, number one, that, as you say, Cube is one of the best to ever do it. And number two, West Coast ain't nothing to play with. Do not piss these boys off because they will give you all you can handle and some. And, and let's give credit. There was West Coast rap before NWA. Ice-T, Too Short were already kind of established out there on that coast. Ice-T kind of gets forgotten a little bit, right, uh, Brian, with what he was he able to do. And a, a, a hustler and a soldier turned <laughs> turned into a rap artist and then a TV star and a movie star. They laid the groundwork, but really NWA put the West Coast on the map, and then Cube set kind of set the path. When I think of essential '90s albums, the first one that comes to mind to me is Death Certificate by Cube. It was so it it, it hit all the. It checked all the boxes. I mean, not only did it have no Vaseline, which you referenced his diss track to his former uh, bandmates in NWA, uh, <laughs> Steady Mobbin may be it's my favorite rap song of all time. It's 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 perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It it just seems like to me that was the just the perfect album at that time. It, it, it came out at just the right time. Yeah, it was from the West Coast, but it still had some of that East Coast edge because Cube was still using some of those East Coast producers, the Bomb Squad from Public Enemy, that helped his solo career. It was militant. It was controversial. It was angry. It was perfection. And when I think of that era, that's the album that I think of. I always spring to, boom, it's Death Certificate by Ice Cube. No doubt about it. I mean, you, you kind of you referenced the one that I think most people do go to with Steady Mobbin, man. But for me, I'm not even going to lie. My favorite track on that, besides, of course, No Vaseline, it's probably wrong person to mess with, and I'm, you know, using the, the proper language with that one. But, you know, that was probably one of our favorites. That's true to the game, and, I, and uh, of course, that's us and, 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 you know, doing dumb ass. So, I mean, those are just a couple of my favorites from, the, from that album. I think you're right. I think outside of Snoop's Dogg's first album, Ice Cube's Death Certificate may be the greatest West Coast album made. And as you stated, you know, we, we kind of forget about Ice-T. We forget about E-40, who kind of, you know, blazed the trail of his own and, you know, with his own even language at the time. I mean, E-40 would talk to you. You'd have no damn clue what the hell he was telling you. But you just knew it was cool <laughs> because he said it. I love, I, I love the Bay Area uh, guys. Uh, E-40, Be Legit, Spice One, of course, Too Short. 
uh, even Rappin' Forte had some links out there to, to, to that area. It was, it, it was, when you think of West Coast rap, it was, that, that they had a different sound in the Bay Area, Brian. It, it just sounded different. The production was different. I mentioned Ant Banks, longtime producer of Too Short. It just sounded different. It was a little bit funkier than what everyone else was doing around that time. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, you know, to me, in my, my, my opinion, of course, you know that kind of the blues slash funk music is kind of what influenced the Bay Area, but it also, to me, influenced Snoop, because Snoop has a lot of that funk type of music to him. Yep. And, you know, you kind of watch him play around a little bit, and he really does dig, like, the George Clinton type of music. So, man, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it seems like Snoop was, was like, the, the, the guy that bridged the gap between with L.A. and with Bay Area rapping. Snoop was kind of that guy that brought it all together and made the West Coast basically just stand up and say, you know what? We we don't have to bow down to the East Coast. We'll just step on the building and keep on going, literally, because that's what Snoop did in, the, in, uh, in one of the videos. Let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's stay with the Bay Area. L- let's talk a little bit about Too Short. I-, I-, I always used to make the joke for the longest time, Brian, is that, look, it- Too Short was never the greatest lyricist. It- he just wasn't. He didn't have the best voice, but he just knew how to carry himself, and he, he knew how to – put out just great records now my favorite two short record is the one that was supposed to be his retirement record album number 10 i just love it from start to finish especially the track where he disses the loonies and he was a staple and i always made the joke brian is that his catchphrase and a lot of the things that he was rapping about in the late 80s and early 90s guys are still stealing from right now today in 2020 Oh, no doubt. I mean, the song that Drake just made, I believe it's, uh, it's Sex for Free, I believe is the name of it now. I think that's the proper way to, 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 you know, to recite it at this point. I mean, that's <laughs> too short all over. That's like the, the new and important. In fact, if I didn't know better, and of course there's been some accusations here and there of, you know, Drake using, you know, helping, help to uh, write his raps. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Too Short kind of helped pin some of that because it would just sounded every bit of what Too Short was for people who didn't know who Too Short was. So if you're a, like one of these you know, millennials or whatever they're called now, that these new cats that's walking around, if you didn't know Too Short, you thought Drake made that song? No, my friend, that is Too Short all over again, and I love every bit of it because it kind of it kind of like brought us back a little bit to where it all started. That song is excellent, man. And Too Short, the blow the whistle thing, man. I mean. The dude still has it. I think he can put out an album right now, and I mean, it at least sell at least two hundred and fifty thousand to five hundred thousand units because he's still too short. He's still going to make his money on the West Coast, and he still has something to say. And I mean, after what thirty years now, he's still going oh, thirty plus, th- th- thirty plus, and he he was kind of a titan, and uh, always picked up on how other guys respected him, Snoop Dogg being one of them. He would always talk glowingly about Too Short, Short Dogg, as they used to call him back in the day. And it's just, you know, definitely a guy that was never had the huge commercial appeal. I guess Get In Where You Fit In was really kind of a a breakout breakout hit for him commercially, so to speak. Uh, Back in the day, if you were in the BMG Music Club or Columbia House, you could uh, get all of that great Bay Area rap. Uh, sent you in the mail, as I did uh, time and time again, Uh, Brian. Another guy that is polarizing, and and we'll we'll get to Pac in a little bit because East Coast and West Coast, he he was kind of both. But uh, Tupac always had a great 
relationship with all the guys, in particularly in Oakland and in the Bay Area, whether it was Too Short or Spice One or whoever it was, E-40, he always was really affiliated with them, even though he was never on the label with those guys. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I think Pop, basically, because he probably had to in a lot of, you know, for a lot of people's memories, if you lived on the East Coast, had to go to the West Coast. He always did maintain that respect and that love and that relationship with those guys. Because even once he decided to bomb on the East Coast, you know, and he kind of went all the way West, he kind of aligned himself with a lot of those same guys and did a lot of music with those guys that kind of, you know, even if they didn't have the light they were supposed to, he shined the light on them. And this was even back when Pop when it was in his, like, his militant conscious days, man, that he would kind of, you know, reach out and show love to those guys. So you can tell he had a lot of influence with a lot of different folks and of course he had the name but those guys definitely held their weight on those songs so i mean for me Pac did a great service to, to everyone because of you know first of all you know the controversy that is tupac because you know controversy sells let's just call it what it is and of course man him being able to shine that light on some other west coast artists who, like you said the rapping fortes and those guys who may not have been you know had the same amount of publicity and notoriety Pop kind of was like, no, look, I don't care about the Miller right. I don't care about the publicity, dude. You can spit it. So I'm going to put you on his album. Yeah, and Pac would appear on anyone's record. I mean, hell, remember he was with MC Breed, and MC Breed's what, from Flint, Michigan, or Detroit? Yeah. And uh, helped put MC Breed on to, on a kind of a national level, so to speak. But, you know, the West Coast in the early 90s, look, you, you had Ice Cube. You also had Ice-T. His last great album, of course, was Original Gangster in 91. That had New Jack Hustler, Mind Over Matter, and Midnight on there. It's terrific album but you can't talk west coast rap in the 90s and not talk about death row seeing it happen brian and watching death row just absolutely not over not only take over the entire west coast it took over the entire country man it just it did everyone wanted to be affiliated with death row of course the chronic was the genesis of that dr dre's solo record which was essentially a, a, a duo album with snoop and everyone else on the label and inclu- including bushwick bill who was not part of the uh, the label of death row records but he, he appeared on the record it, the chronic and then everything came after it snoop dog with with doggy style the dog pound, uh, dog pounds album murder was a case soundtrack tupac gets signed to death row he releases all eyes on me for a good three to four years man it was death row and no one else I mean, that, I, I, I'm almost willing to say it probably extended after that because even after Pac's passing and Big's passing, I mean, Pac was still putting out albums to a point to where it almost sounded believable that Pac was still alive because he was still <laughs> just cranking them out. So it's like you almost believe the story if you didn't know any better. But, I mean, Death Row had a handle on rap that I think the only thing we can compare to it now is the, the basically the, the Southpaw stance that rap is taking, which means that at one time the South wasn't included in rap at all, and now everything sounds Southern. That's the only thing I can compare to what Death Row did because, I mean, Jay-Z likes to brag and say he had it for a straight summers. Well, I mean, nobody had rap on a lock like Death Row. I mean, because everybody banged everything that they did. And, of course, there was the East Coast, West Coast beef. But I think most people will tell you that they think the West Coast was far and above whatever the East Coast was doing at that time. Because, of course, you had Snoop, you had Pac, you had the Dog Pound. You know, I mean, the West Coast was just riding on everybody. And it wasn't even close. Even, you know, even TVA for a little bit. And Bump Thug got kind of caught up in the crossfire, you know. So, I mean... What the West Coast did, especially what Death Row did, was strike a fear in rap we haven't seen. And the only person who could stand up and say, you know what, the West, there was only two people that could stand up and say the West Coast didn't affect me at all. Master P was one of them, and Jay Prince was the other. Those are the only two guys that could sit down and say that, you know, nobody was afraid of Shug, and we meant every bit of that. 
Yeah, and everyone everyone was afraid of Suge Knight. Uh, some of those stories are obviously legends. Some of them are half-truths, and some of them are reality, for sure. When you think about the, the Death Row staple, everyone focuses on the chronic and rightfully so. It is a masterpiece. But so is Snoop Dogg's solo record, and so is All Eyes on Me by Pac. When you look at that... Which which is your favorite of of those of that that death row era when they were really on top of the rap game? I think it's doggy style. I think that when you say masterpiece, that might actually be one I, for for me because all eyes on me. I think for as, as much as Pac was a genius, and all eyes on me is definitely a great album. You know, both the double disc. I think if he would have condensed that into one disc instead of putting on the double disc, and he kind of ushered in that double disc era because I don't think yeah. people were really putting them out like that. So he was kind of the first one to say, you know what, I'm just going to put out two at one time and see what happens. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love every bit of it, but I still think if he would have condensed some of those songs into maybe one disc, it might have been probably the greatest album we've ever seen made. But for, for me, it's doggy style. I mean, the way Snoop kind of basically – hit the rap game and took over with his singles. I mean, from Gin and Juice to uh, uh, Doggy Style to What's My Name. I mean, dude just went, when Snoop, I, it's almost like, of course, back then, I know everybody now has YouTube, so you don't have to wait at all. But back then, we used to have to wait around for the video to come on. I wouldn't move until Snoop's video came on, man. <laughs> it was it was a different time, man. You, you, you'd go out, and when the new record would come out, you drive to your record store or walk to your record store and get the new cassette tape. I got ton, I still have all my cassette tapes, by the way, Brian. Get the cassette or, or, or the CD, and it was just like death row. It was, it was, I, I, I told this to someone the other day. You know how everyone just got so amped up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Like you couldn't wait till the next one movie came out. Yeah. Like you were just amped up. That's how death row was because they even did that thing, remember, Brian, where they would do a preview in the sleeve of the CD or the cassette where they would have the pictures of the next albums coming out. Like, it was appointment. Like, you were like, oh, man, the new album's going to come out in May. We never got the Helter Skelter album, by the way, between Dre and Cube. That never came to be. But it it was like that. It was was blockbuster. It It was the new summer movie came out, and when they dropped an album, it was over, and you were just like, I can't wait. You would listen to it over and over again, and then you couldn't wait to get the next one. And that's how it was. It was just a crazy time where they just controlled rap. And when they got Pac, when they got him out of prison and he signed with them, and the, the stories are legendary, that he spent all of his time in the in the studio. That's all he did. He just would just lay down track after track after track. That's why we had so much music after he passed in 96 that it didn't matter. He just – he was such a – was his work ethic was unbelievable – but when he like when that happened, it was it, it was like LeBron James deciding to go to the Miami Heat. Like it, it was that kind of big deal in pop culture that Tupac was going to death row. Yeah, you said Miami Heat, you know, LeBron going to Miami. It was kind of like that. But to me, I think I'm going to keep the sports analogy going, and I'm going to go, it was KD going to the Warriors. Because, I yeah. mean, you already had a team with Dre and, of course, with Snoop and, and you know, the Dog Brown. And all of a sudden, now they get Pop, one of the biggest, you know, names out there. They get him, they add him. And, I mean, the championship run they went on was kind of crazy. It's the same feeling to me, man. Pop was just that dude. And, of course, instead of him coming off his, his, his militant slash, you know, uh, conscious days, 
Pac was already in full aggressive, let me attack you mode. He was coming off the Me Against the World album, and then he gets sit down, he's spitting at judges and he's spitting at cameramen. I mean, you know, like basically cursing out judges, spitting at cameramen. And all of a sudden now Death Row gets him. And basically saved his life because, of course, people on the East Coast still wanted him out of there. So, I mean, they get him, they bring him to the West Coast, and all of a sudden now his full-on attack was straight. I'm going to bomb on everybody East Coast who had something who I feel like had a part to do with me getting shot up. And I'm going to try to not only ruin your careers, I'm going to try to ruin your life. To where everywhere you go, somebody's going to be basically, you know, telling you what I said about you. And that's exactly what happened. Because, I mean, you you see the movies that are made now. And, of course, there's the scene in in the Tory's movie to where he almost kicks in the door of his wife trying to find out if she actually did have a relationship with Pac. And, I mean, that's a hell of a scene because that's how angry and, and, and well Pac got under your skin. He knew how to needle you. I've always said he was an angry poet because he just – and I've always said this. If he hadn't died, I don't think Pac would have kept doing music. I I think you would have seen him become a filmmaker. Like, I I could just see him going in a different direction than what everyone else was doing. Like, I don't don't think he'd still be doing records like Jay-Z is, you know, almost 20 years in the game. I think Pac would have been like, you know what, I'm doing something else. I'm going to change how things are done. And he just thought that way. I'll ask you this, Brian. I've always, people love All Eyes on Me. And you mentioned it, Double Disc. It's a great album. There is some a little bit of filler on there. His masterpiece to me is Me Against the World. And that's obviously yes. was recorded when he was on trial and about to go to prison. That it, that that was kind of, it's also the bridge for Pac's career. The, the kind of the more social conscious guy that came up from digital underground and then had his own solo career with Apocalypse now and then strictly four and it, it still was that and then it was also just you know dear mama is on there and, and everything i don't know that that seemed like for me even though all eyes on me was a blockbuster and it, it was it sold more copies me against the world i think is his masterpiece and i think is his his magnum opus so to speak when I say I am with you, I wish I would have said it before you did. That's how much we're on the same page with this. Me Against the World is his very best work, and I don't care what else he put out afterwards. I know he has a bunch of – I think you could take some of his, his songs on his other albums after that and put them together, and it still wouldn't be better than Me Against the World because, I mean, it's, as you stated, that Temptations, Lord knows, Dear Mama, it ain't easy. Uh, 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 so many tears. I mean, like, Pac's Me Against the World album – my goodness, man. You know, people throw around the word classic and masterpiece very loosely when it comes to, to rap albums. That might be as close to the, the, the Pops Mon Lisa as we're going to get. Before we move over, uh, move on from the West Coast, uh, Brian, most underrated act on, on the West Coast. There's a lot of good guys that you can pick. A lot of people would say corrupt from the dog pound, always just kind of flew under the radar. Uh, uh, MC Wren, obviously from uh, NWA. Sebo from Sacramento. I used to love Sebo. Another one guy that Pac hung out with and, and kind of put on the alcoholics. But the big one for me, if I had to pick the most underrated West Coast act, was the one that kind of went against the grain of what was happening in the West Coast in the 90s, and, and that was the far side. They just were different cats, and they put out some absolutely phenomenal records. And even though they had some success with Drop, that was the Spike Jones directed video that they had. And then uh, Lab Cab in California 
with running that kind of broke through on MTV a little bit and, of course, on BET. They were always under the radar for me, and that, that's the one that kind of stands out for the West Coast era of 90s rap was the far side. Far side passing me by is still a banger, man. I play that whenever chance I get. So definitely, you know, love that, love that. But for me, my most underrated West Coast rapper has to be Exhibit, man. I, and the crazy thing is he's not even from the West Coast. He kind of just blended in with the West Coast because he kind of moved there, I think, later on in his life. But he's probably the most underrated to me. Dude had bars he could spit. He just, for some strange reason, even, you know, I think maybe Pimp My Rod may have killed his career more than it ever did help his career, even though he kind of transitioned over into acting. I just, I think he was so underrated as far as his lyrics and his bars and his ability to actually construct a song. Exhibit is that dude for me, man. X to the Z was actually one of those dudes who would spit on any song with anybody. And you can tell because when he was on the song with Snoop and Dre and everybody else, he didn't get, you know, ran over. I mean, he probably had some of the best verses on the song, to be honest. Honest, but I think that's my most underrated West Coast artist. That's a great one as well. Let's head over to the East. Wild Death Row was kind of running the show, so to speak, running rap music. The East Coast kind of had what I call like an organic, gritty revival almost. You know, Tribe was holding it down, Tribe Called Quest. They were still doing their thing with the low end theory and Midnight Marauders, but. There was this, this this griminess and this ruggedness coming out of New York that finally kind of broke through in the early 90s, around 93, 94. Enter, enter the 36 Chambers for Wu-Tang Clan. Nas's Illmatic, which, by the way, dropped in 94. And if you talk to people today, everyone bought that album, even though it never even went gold in the first, like, three years it was right. out. But, 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 but everyone loved Nas back in the day, which is a great farce. And then you had all the Wu-Tang solo acts like Raekwon and Ghostface Killer. Uh, obviously, Jay-Z finally breaks through with Reasonable Doubt in 96 and Mob Deep as well with the infamous. And, of course, Biggie, Ready to Die, blows up. And that really kind of served as the, the, the iconic album record of East Coast rap, the kind of resurgence, resurgence, so to speak, when the East Coast dominated in the late 80s with EPMD. What do you remember, you know, being down south, and hearing what was coming out of the East Coast, coming out of the boroughs, so in particular, there in the early '90s, I've always been more of an East Coast, you know, East Coast hip hop head because you know, down south, of course, we had the bounce music, the booty music, the music that you know you want to go party to. But East Coast is where you had the lyrics and the bars, and you know, you had the guys who were yeah. storytelling and you know, you know, making basically painting a picture with words. I've always taken a liking to that man, and of course, you mentioned one of the, the you know, one of the, I guess the, the pioneers in the idea of you had Wu Tang, who not only had you know themselves individually could hold their own, but as a collection, it was just dropping heat, man. So for me, I definitely kind of stuck more towards the East Coast rap. Uh, Illmatic, as you said, everybody says that they had it. Nobody really did. Nobody really got on <laughs> Nas like that until way later on. I don't know why they lied about that one. <laughs> I mean, so I, way I later. It wasn't until you, you you could always tell, right? You could always tell when it came to Nas. And you could always tell when people, that, that they started like, oh, yeah, I love Nas. And I was like, oh, yeah, you love Nas when he's doing a song with Lauryn Hill. Do, do do you remember the right. production that he had underneath with DJ Premier on his debut? No. no, you 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 you're not you're not about that. You're not about uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, I just I always laugh at that because everyone you, you talk it was that thing. It was like oh yeah yeah. It was like when you talk about sporting events and people are like oh yeah I was at that game and it's like bruh, if you were at that game that means like 1.2 million people were at that game. 
you weren't at that game, just like people did by uh, Nas's Illmatic when it first came out. No, I'll be one of the honest ones and say I didn't get it. And to be honest with you, I didn't really jump on Illmatic like that until after it was written. So I'll be I'll totally honest. Once it was written came out, I went back and really checked because I've heard Illmatic, no doubt. But I wasn't really feeling a vibe at first when I first heard it because I kind of felt like maybe it was the production between him and Premier that I wasn't just really feeling. Then he drops it was written, and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Let me go back and check out, you know, check out his earlier work. Then, of course, Jay-Z on, on Reasonable Doubt samples, you know, his voice on Dead Presidents, and he goes back, and I'm like, wait a minute. What if Miles ain't no joke? Let me go back and really get into him, and that's when I fell in love with Illmatic. But it wasn't at first. So I'm not going to be one of the ones that lie and tell you, I was just, you know, immediately, here's Nas, here I am. I'm right on the bandwagon with him. That's not me. I, I will say this as well. Of those East Coast records, it's not my absolute favorite. And, and that's not meant to be disrespectful. It's just when I first heard Nas, and I'm going to be honest, I heard Cool G Rap. That, that, that's, yeah. that's who I heard. And... I was already a fan of Cool G Rap, by the way, wildly underrated and hugely influential on that whole that generation that came in right after him. You hear Cool G Rap throughout so many different guys that came back, but particularly Nas, and I heard Cool G Rap. For me, as, as much as I respected that record by Nas, and I did, and I bought it, and I owned it, and, and everything like that, it was just... It was it was this weird thing where I was like, yeah, but I hear too much Cool G rap, and I love Cool G rap, so I, I kind of maybe discounted it a, a little bit at first, Brian, because I was like, well, it sounds like what this other guy's been doing for a couple years, and and, and that's not not to, not to meant to be disrespect because Cool G rap and Nas were cool, and Nas even uh, was featured on a Cool G rap album, but it was just like that's what I heard. Yeah, and I think the song that really kind of makes you feel that way, it's it, getting hard to tell. That, that's the song that I was like, okay, I, t- I took to it. But I just was like, man, this dude isn't really like, he's not what everybody's making him out to be. Because, I mean, I had people who would almost want to fight me when I used to say Nas isn't that dude like that. I mean, even growing <laughs> up, I was a bigger J fan than I was a Nas fan, man. And I was like, nah, man, I'm like, you know what, uh, just you know, call me when you're about to play Rock Kim or somebody like that. Because this Nas dude, y'all can have him. I'm not really interested in that. And like I said, when it was written drop. Of course, that's when I kind of got on, you know, I kind of got on Nas, and I was like, okay, you know, I I like this dude, man. You know, I like what he's bringing to the table. And the first song it was written that I like wasn't even one of his commercial singles. It was actually Watch Them that was, you know, produced by uh, Dre, I believe. So, I mean, that that was the first song that took me, because I think he had Foxy on that one, too. So I'm like, oh, yeah, like, okay, now I'm with you. But before that, I wasn't. I wasn't on Nas. I'm sorry, Nas is coming. Is I think the one that, uh, with Drake produced. But it's just the idea. I wasn't really on Nas like that, man. It was written flop, and I go back and I listen to it. And I'm like, okay, now I'm with it. But nah, not for me, man. I'm like, he sounded too much like Kushi rap, and I really wanted to hear more Rock him than I ever did want to hear Nas. And the other thing about Nas that kind of rubbed me the the wrong way. And I, I'm like you. As much as I love the West Coast and growing up in the South. Uh, in Alabama and then in the West Bank of New Orleans and then Gonzales, and then I actually moved up to central Illinois, so I got kind of got a feel for different regions. I always liked the East Coast rappers as well because they were more lyricists. They, they, they were better at lyricists. And the, the thing about me is that I, I liked other guys bef- more. Like, I'm just going to – Gangstar. Like, when I think, like, yes. those guys were already well-established when you look at – uh, you know, hard to earn. It's just it, 
when I look at Gangstar, I, I prefer them over Nas. I prefer uh, I prefer Biggie over Nas. I prefer Jay over Nas. And once again, it's not to say that Nas isn't great and that he isn't a five mic MC as the Source magazine used to give out. That was remember that was the Bible of hip hop culture, right? If you got the five mics for your record, it it, it kind of sets you because people went out and bought your record just because you got five mics. Now the Source famously used to diss West Coast and Southern acts for the longest time, not giving them five mics at all. And finally, Outcast broke that trend. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, It's old Outcast because that first one should have had five mics too. Yeah, and so and so and so should have the second one as well. Um, yeah. it, 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 you can make the argument Equimini may may not be as strong as the first two albums, but we we'll get to that. But you know, not it, but but Nas was so heralded and the and the source kind of pumped him up so much that I felt like, you know what, I was like, yeah, it, it was one of those knee knee jerk reactions, and it wasn't fair because you you really appreciate Nas the the the, the longer his career has gone on. But it was like, you know what, I'd rather listen to Cool G Rap, I'd rather listen to Biggie, I'd rather listen to Wu-Tang and all the 800 affiliates of Wu-Tang, or even Mob Deep, more than I did Nas at first. Uh, let's talk about Mob Deep real quick. Uh, discovered by Q-Tip outside of a studio, and he kind of recommended them, and they got signed to, uh, I think it was Loud Records. I always found that them to be a little underrated, right, Brian? It just it, and oh, and yeah. they got it, they they you know shook ones obviously became immortal in, in a lot of ways for them. But Hell on Earth is a great second album by them. The production was always underrated uh, with uh, by them with Prod, uh, Prodigy doing majority of the lyrics and then Havoc on production. Mob Deep just came out of nowhere and they were young, right? I mean, they were young when they first got put on. They were still like eighteen, nineteen years old. Yeah, no doubt. That's why, you know, when we were talking about West Coast rap, the punk was firing shots at everybody. I'm actually su- surprised Mob Deep made it out of that situation unscathed as as, 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 as as can be at that moment because Pac was trying to take those things. I was like, don't one of y'all have sickle cell and all something like that. Just, like, he was sparing nobody, man. Like, he was, no Mob one. Deep somehow made it out of that situation, man. And, I mean, they came back, and I think once they got, you know, they were using DJ Premier, and they, they got, you know, of course they had uh, Havoc, you know, they had the cosigns from, you know, some of the bigger guys. But when they got with Alchemist, that's when everything changed, man. Now, whatever chemistry that those dudes had, I kind of wish they would have just kind of went the Manny Fresh, you know, cash money route with their Alchemist just did their whole album, and that was just it because they had a smooth chemistry from uh, Getaway to uh, to even on Alchemist's album, man, the songs that they did together, man. Uh, Win or Lose is another one that they did together, yeah. man. So, I th- I mean, I, I love Alchemist's production. I love their sound with Alchemist. That was a hell of a tandem, but I know Prodigy like to take care of that. And he, it's not like he was most thoughts on making the, the beats anyway. Another act that really, you know, we, we mentioned it was Wu-Tang. What, when Enter the 36 Chambers came out, and I jokingly, you and I talked about this back and forth on Twitter, you know, uh, <laughs> Wu-Tang was... I don't think white folks loved anyone more than Wu-Tang. Like, it just was this weird thing that Wu-Tang came out, and they were gritty, and they were grimy, and they represented Staten Island, and white people just flocked to Wu-Tang Clan, Brian. They just did. It was everything. And I was one of them. Absolutely loved. I bought all the solo records. I did everything. I got the Gravediggers album, which was an offshoot. I picked up Capadonna's album, even though he wasn't an official member. Like, it was just Wu-Tang just hit and it was like a bomb went off and 
everyone just kind of just went to them because we had never heard anything like that before? I'm still, when I say one of life's greatest mysteries, I'm still surprised about what you just said. I've never understood why Wu-Tang was the group that made white people flock to, to hip-hop. And like, you know what? I don't know about this heavy metal stuff, but whatever that is, give me more of that. Because it was all, and, and I understand Method Man. I understand Meth because Meth was more of the commercial success type of guy. Oh, He's absolutely. the guy that was, was almost like pushed to the forefront because it's like, well, we all make, you know, good music. But so, for some reason, yours connects more with the audience. So let's get you, you know, out there. I know Ghostface kind of did it. Rick Kwan did it with the Purple Tape. But, I mean, nobody kind of connected like Meth did, even when him transitioned into, you know, him and Redman doing that thing. And, if, you know, to me, Redman might be the most underrated dude on the East Coast. But, you know, oh, that, yeah. that's just, and that's what that but with Wu-Tang, man, I mean, yes, it's like, I mean, people were buying, you know, like, you know, You God, man. I'm like, nobody listens to him. I don't even listen to You God, but people were buying him. Oh, like, man. Uh, Wu Wear, remember that? Oh, yeah, yes. you had Wu Wear. You know, the Wallabies. Oh, it just... It just and then Rizzo went on to his Bobby Digital phase where he had his alter ego. Yeah. It was it, it it was crazy when Enter the Thirty Six came out and it just blew up. And then it was like, who's gonna who's gonna come out? Who's gonna who, who's gonna come out? And of course, uh, Def Jam locked up Method Man early, right? That was the first guy because yeah. they saw they they looked at him. They're like, oh, he has commercial appeal, so we're gonna put out his his solo record uh, to Cal and. It was okay. I've always thought like Method's solo works were a little overrated. I always thought he worked yeah. better in the group. He yes, he fits best where where like Ghostface and Raekwon they can do a whole record without the group and they're good. Like they're just that much better than everyone else. But Method Man hits first, and of course he blows up. And you and I joked about this, you know, when he hooks up with Mary J. Blige, all you need like, and then that's. That I was like, oh, look at that. That's going to go, and it's going to be just just blockbuster, and it was. But then Old Dirty Bastard was the number two guy. He's the guy that got the essentially, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, a glorified hype man, gets his own solo record, and I absolutely loved it. And people loved Old Dirty Bastard. Like, you just did. He was this crazy just character. I still remember on MTV News where he had already blown up and his debut record was on the charts, Brian, and he still took a limo with his with his wife and his kids to go get food stamps. Like, and yes. it was absolutely insane that this guy, the, the, the most unlikely star for hip-hop, for rap music, was ODB, and yet he just did it, and people just loved him. They put their arms around him, and they said, we love you, ODB, and I still try to wrap my brain around that, Brian. He's like John Daly for some reason, man. It's like, you know, it's like you know he doesn't have the talent of everybody else out there, but for some reason, you're just like, he's like the drunk uncle. Everybody knows he's going to say something stupid, but we're all just waiting for it because we love it. I'm like, that's him. And I'm, I, I give you, the, the, the moment you referenced was like, I mean, he has a camera following him, man. I'm like, are you serious? And he gets the food stamps and he's counting them out. And he's like, hey, he actually goes to spend them. And I'm like, dude, that's why I love you. That is why I love you because no matter what, you are still you. Still him. He was so he, – he, he was true to himself, right? He was not – he was yeah. like, this is me. And another guy who was obviously not part of Wu-Tang, you mentioned him, Red Man's another one. I want to always think of Red Man. One of the first things I think about, he had the greatest Cribs episode of all time. 
because yeah. everyone else has the palaces like Stevie Francis, all the NBA players, and then the hip-hop guys, and then Redman's there, and I was like, oh, God bless you. God bless you, Redman. God bless you. Um, other Wu-Tang, you know, you, you, you boil it down. Jizza, obviously uh, the genius. Uh, Liquid Swords, phenomenal record. But for yeah. me, it came down to Raekwon and Ghostface, and they were so kind of tied at the hip. They were almost the duo inside of Wu-Tang. Like, you, you, had, you, you had great duos on the East Coast with Gangstar and Mob Deep. And then inside Wu-Tang, you had that duo, and it was Raekwon and it was Ghostface, and both of them put out phenomenal records, only built for Cuban links, is maybe the greatest mafioso-style rap record, definitely East Coast that we've probably ever had, and then Ghostface proved to be the guy in the group that had the longevity and continued putting out four mic, five mic records every single time he got in the studio. You know, those two guys really, man, the, the, those, you know, we talk about ODB, we talk about Method, and obviously RZA putting it all together and being kind of the, the producer behind the scenes, but for me it was always Raekwon and Ghostface. Those are the guys that when I listen to a Wu-Tang record, I couldn't wait for their their bars to come on. I couldn't wait to hear what they were going to rap. Yeah, yeah. For me, I'm right there with you, man. Like, for me, Method had the commercial success. So if I was going to go pay for a concert, I'm definitely going to a Method Man concert because I love this energy go. and I love, the, like, the charismatic way he was. If I want to hear bars, it's Ghostface or it's Raekwon. Now, Raekwon I liked a little bit more because, to me, he was more straight up and direct, which is, like you said, the mafioso type of, you know, yeah. slow because he was straight in your face. Ghostface would take you around the corner, down the block, up the street, and come back through. And that's when he would get to his point. But it was always connected. So it was almost like, you know, you take three lefts, you take a right, and you take another left, and you're right there. That's what Ghostface would do when he would rap for you. So I kind of just I love both of them styles, man. The Iron Man album. I mean, Ghostface really was, oh, was wow. even with the bird on his arm, man. So, I mean, that was him. So I, I love both of those guys. But if I have to pick between the two, I'm definitely taking Raekwon, man. The only bill for Cuban Lanes is the best album, I think, the collection of Wu-Tang dropped. I, I would agree with that. It's it, it's the best, and it is, it's absolutely perfect. Now, look, we've talked a little bit about Gangstar, Daily Operation, Hard to Earn, uh, phenomenal, underrated. I, I love, I adore DJ Premier, and some of the best records in the 90s coming out of the East Coast were produced by DJ Premier, or at least had some of his beats on there. We talked about Mob Deep. We talked about Nas, how both you and I kind of came to him late and really appreciated him afterwards. I think for Nas, the beef with Jay-Z played a huge role in that because I think it reinvigorated him after the firm flop and after Hate Me Now and, you know, all the nonsense with him and, and, and Diddy, it, all, their, all that kind of collaboration during that time. Jay kind of recentered him and, like, he, he got back on track is the way, the way I always think. And then, and then Nas is now viewed in more of a legendary uh, it kind of uh, uh, prism, so to speak. Let's talk about Jay, and then I want to talk about Big before we wrap up the East Coast. Yeah, well, Jay, Reasonable Jay doubt. The, the, the... Go ahead. I was going to say, Jay is the, the savior of East Coast rap, and he's the savior of Nas's career, so yeah, you get on with that one, man. Yeah. Reasonable Doubt is another record, just like Nas's Elmatic, Elmatic, that everyone said they listened to and they loved, and they didn't, uh, because it didn't sell worth a damn either. But it is, wow. Like, you just, when you listen to it, and I, I, I was privileged to watch CJ in concert, St. Louis, 
TWA Dome. It was after Biggie had passed. They did that uh, Puff Daddy and the Family Tour, and it was Puffy, Little Kim, The Locks, Usher, Jay-Z, Buster Rhymes, Foxy Brown, and they all went on tour, and I went, and Jay didn't have anything but reasonable doubt to perform. And even then, even though he wasn't as dynamic as he would become later, and even though he didn't have a big stage show like Buster Rhymes did, I remember watching it and going, wow, like this guy is really, you, you could see him coming into his own, like everything had just come together for him, and he hit the ground running, and he hasn't stopped since. It's almost amazing for those who didn't know Jay-Z before he became Jay-Z, and he didn't even rap like this. Like the way he raps now, the slow flow, that wasn't Jay's style. Jay had a little bit of common to him, you know, like, like the common sense back in, back in that area, a little bit of common, a little bit of fast flow to him. So that the Jay-Z we hear now wasn't the same dude. I mean, I remember the first time I made a video of Punky Shirt playing in the shiny suit, he was like, ah, oh, hell no, this ain't going to work. But when it came to reasonable doubt, this was one of the first albums for me, well, I, I call them just press play albums, where you just put it in, you yep. press play, you let it go, and you don't touch it. That was Jay. The only song I think I was skip over maybe at Brooklyn Finest, and I still used to give that one a little bit of play. But from Can't Knock the Hustle, it was Politics as Usual, uh, The Dead President, and my favorite song might be feeling it, because I, to this day, I, I think I can tell you this you know, without lying to you. I probably play feeling at least six times a month. Because at some point I get into the mood and I call my car, I have a camera, I call my car the Batmobile. Whenever I'm in that car, still it have to get played. For whatever reason, for some, I have to play it. So I, I, when I get in my car and I'm able to kind of drive around on the weekend to kind of have a little fun with it, feeling it gets played. Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt is the best damn album I think I heard back in 96 when it came out, man. And, and we're talking about the 90s. For people that, that really had, didn't pay attention to rap back then, 90, 94 through 98, late 98, was probably the greatest era of music that was gone, especially 98, because, I mean, we're talking about albums on top of albums on top of albums that was released, and every single one of them was going at least three times platinum. And Jay yep. for 96, when he dropped Reasonable Doubt, it crushed everything. I mean, it basically put him in a, in a mind frame of he could never drop another album again, and that well, and that album would immortalize. It's almost like a time capsule. If you take a time capsule of what 1996 was, Reasonable Doubt would be that time capsule. It would be, and it, it was slept on, famously slept on. People did yeah. not embrace it for whatever reason. It just kind of fell under the radar and then he finally would break through with commercial success a few years later and kind of carry the torch, you're right, for New York rap. Because once Biggie died, there was no one. And Mob Deep fell off a little bit, and Gangstar went on a hiatus, and Nas kind of went off and in kind of kind of just kind of went off a little bit and had to be recentered. And Jay kind of, you know, what's the line that they did with Snoop about crushing the buildings when he came to New York? Yeah. And Jay, yeah. so it was. It was that, and Jay-Z brought pride back to New York rap and New York solo artists for for the next 10-plus years, and he's still doing it. And I joke now, I was like, well, what can you possibly be rapping about now? I mean, you're a bazillionaire, you own sports teams and liquor companies, and you married Beyonce. I don't know what you're going to be bringing to the table, but he still is a great MC. we got to talk about Big. Because even after his death a couple of decades now, he still looms so large and ready to die 
is still iconic and still people you can just see it Brian when they discover that record it's a game changer for them like if if if, when they discover when they listen to ready to die and they just go wow you could just see it their mind is just literally blown they're like what is this and how can I get more of it it seems like one of the most honest albums you ever hear artists record from yeah. One More Chance, especially the remix, uh, One More Chance, the Juicy, uh, uh, warning. Gosh, uh, the Big Pop, yeah, Warning, of course, man. Uh, I think one of my one of the better ones, oh, my gosh, one of the better ones on there. Absolutely, absolutely with Everyday Struggle. So, I mean, for oh, me, yeah. I just... I just think, man, Biggie just, man, like, it was probably, like I said, one of the most honest albums ever because he actually told you what it was, like, especially even in the intro of, 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 of uh, I want to say it's Juicy, when he, I'm not, not, not Juicy, I'm sorry, it can't be Juicy, let me think, is it ready to die? When he comes on, he says, man, I, w- I want to, you know, thank all the people who were trying to just call the police on me when I was out there selling crack just to feed my kid, like, that's, that was Biggie, like, that, he's not, he's not just saying that, that's exactly who he was, so, I mean, like, to me, it, it's, it's it's probably the 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 rap album. If you wanted to put somebody on East Coast rap, you say, okay, go to this album, and that would be the album yeah. that you referred them to. And the craziest thing is that's not his best work, because for as great as Ready to Die was, Life After Death might be. I mean, I, I just for me, it might be the best album ever made from an East Coast artist from front to back. I mean, that album was ridiculous, and, and Biggie, you know, he held it that one. No now, filler. don't get me wrong. And yeah, it, I mean, and it know, had no filler, which was crazy when when that, the double the, album came out. I was, I was like, really? You, you could tell they put real thought into it, and that he was still hungry, even though he had blown up with Ready to Die, and then obviously he helped launch Junior Mafia and helped launch Little Kim's career. That he still had something to say, and that he still was in this zone, so to speak, about making great music, and and he did, and unfortunately he was taken away from us before he even really got started. Biggie dominates East Coast rap. Before we move on to the South, Brian, let's talk about two acts as well. we got to talk about X, DMX. And I, I know his life has kind of spiraled out of control, and it's become more of kind of a reality show train wreck. But, boy, that gritty and grime. Get At Me Dog came out, and I remember sitting with some friends. I was living in Illinois at the time. And the video came on, uh, you'll remember this, back in the day, The Box. Not even MTV, yes. but The Box. And yes. they showed Get At Me Dog, which was black and white, and then they flipped the exposure on it. So, And it was just like concert footage of him rapping in a club. And I remember some of my friends going, I don't really like that, because they liked everything that sounded kind of smoothed out, right? Uh, very well produced and everything like that. And I, I sat in front of it, and I was like, this is awesome and they're like why do you love it so much and i go because that cat right there mr simmons is angry and it is real and it is not him trying to be something that he's not it is authentic as hell and i loved it and i love the energy and he's a guy that struggled to get on and he finally breaks through and man he just was was releasing albums every six months like he was like he was just pent up and he finally got that release uh, DMX is just I, look. I know I know he's become a bit of a train wreck, Brian. But in the late '90s, there when he first came out, whew, just phenomenal. It's in, you know, the old saying, "Timing is everything." If DMX comes out while Pac is out, 
because Pac had the, the hold on aggressive music you know, between the few, between the East Coast, West Coast. I'm not sure if DMX, I'm not going to say he wouldn't have made it, but I'm not sure he gets the proper credit. When Pac passes, of course, now everybody wants to kind of dial back a little bit. Nobody wants to be aggressive. Everybody wants to make friendly, happy music. And then this dude just comes out of nowhere. And the very first time I heard DMX, I'm at home, I'm watching the Apollo, LL Cool J performs. One of my favorite artists of all time because you cannot tell me I did not write Rock the Bells. You just can't tell me that. I know I did. LL <laughs> stole it from me. That being said, I'm watching, you know, I'm watching Apollo. LL Cool J's on, and of course he's in the middle of a beef himself. So he's dropping four, three, two, one, and I mean, all of a sudden, this dude, this little bitty dude, I mean, looks like a little, you know, a little micro mini dude, comes out of nowhere, and the crowd erupts. I'm like, who the hell is that guy? And DMX is on, and, of course, you know, his verse comes on, and I'm like, he's rapping, and the crowd just goes nuts. So now I'm digging into who this dude is. And, of course, I find out he gets discovered by Irv Gotti. You know, he's basically Ja Rule's yeah. understudy at the time because they had Ja Rule, and Ja Rule, they were trying to break him, so they weren't going to put X and Ja Rule up at the same time, basically, because their voices sound so gritty and grimy the same. And then X discovers Rough Riders with Dean and the guys over there. And when It's Dark and Hell is Hot Drop, I was done. Oh, I mean, when I say from the minute that he was on, I was on. I'm, that is the press play album right there. And then he, like you said, six months later he comes back. 1998, DMX drops. It's dark and hell is hot, and he comes back with flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. You could not tell me he wasn't the best rapper ever at that moment because I mean the albums both from It's Dark and Hell Is Hot to you know Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. It was no filler. Even a Danian in the same were, were awesome. year. In the same in the year. Same year. In the same year, and shout out to him because he gave the locks an opportunity to actually yeah. shed that image that Puffy tried to make them into, yeah. and they got they got they actually got the opportunity to kind of express themselves the way they always wanted to, and they had they had that opportunity, and it was just and, and, and I look back at it now and it was like a comet right because he has the two albums in '98 and then and then there was X in '99. And then the problem started to develop for him in the early 2000s with substance abuse and, and, and prison. But X really helped kind of end the decade there for East Coast rap. Real quickly, before we go to the South, the Roots. I know they're not New York. They're Philly-based. I adore them, love them. And I know a lot of people now only know them as the backing band for Jimmy Fallon, which is a damn shame. Because they put out Black Thought is one of the best MCs of all time. They always were another one of those under-the-radar. You mentioned Redman, who I absolutely love. Definitely an under-the-radar cat from the East Coast. So was Gangstar. But the Roots, even though, they were, even though they were critically acclaimed, especially later on when all things fall apart, they just represented themselves from Philly. No one sounded like them. It was kind of some of the remnants of A Tribe Called Quest, but different. It seemed a little bit more uh, – focus is the wrong word. It just seemed a little bit more gritty than what Tribe was doing, and I don't know. I just, I, I'm a big Roots guy, are you? Yes, absolutely. As you name the album, Things Fall Apart was like my jam, especially when they hooked up with, of course, uh, Jill Scott and Erica Badu. You really can't tell who sung what oh, yeah. on, on, you know. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, when they hooked up and they made that, and also they discovered Eve as well. So, I mean, it's not like they just, you know, they came out of nowhere with it. I mean, those dudes were putting in, and Black Thought, yeah, and Black Thought was good to go, man. I mean, he's probably, as you say, I said Red Man might be, I might have to change that. Black Thought might just be the 
most underrated lyricists on, you know, from the East Coast. If you want to say New York, I got New York, New Jersey area. I'll say Red Man. If you want to say the entire East Coast, yeah, it might be Black Thought. That dude, yeah, man. I mean, he is he is the epitome of a lyricist. And if you don't believe me, for all you guys who are out there who can listen to the podcast, if you want to know Black Thought, Google, go to YouTube or Google Black Thought's Funkmaster Flex Freestyle. You will hear everything you need to know from that moment on. Absolutely. A great MC. By the way, one of my favorite songs, it wasn't in the 90s, would be later when him and Ghostface got together and did In the Park. And that was just, I was like, oh, two of my favorite acts coming together. All right, man, we've talked West Coast, we talked East Coast. The 90s were also known as the rise of the South when it came to rap. Now, full disclosure, Houston was holding it down the whole time with the Ghetto Boys and Mr. Scarface, right? Scarface, Scarface. Uh, you and I have talked about that. So will you do that as the, the jumping off point? Because this, the, the, the South boom that we know would come later with Outkast and then Atlanta kind of being kind of the, the capital, so to speak, uh, of hip-hop in the South and then New Orleans. And, and Miami gets thrown in there a little, a, a little bit too. But Houston held it down for the longest with Scarface and the Ghetto Boys. The Diary, top five album of all time, by the way in rap for me it's absolutely perfect from start to finish talk a little bit about especially being in the south where you really didn't have a lot of guys break through because we're not claiming positive k getting mtv play are we we're not doing that brian right no 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 no, no. It wasn't okay. happening. just just just, <laughs> just check. but uh, houston held it down and particularly the ghetto boys and scarface i mean that that's where we had to go for regional rap yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the thing, man. Like, for me, when everybody, you know, and I understand, you know, respect the T.I. because even he says it at this point, man. Like, you know, if there's going to be a, a so-called king of the South, it's Scarface without a doubt. I mean, no doubt about it. We're talking about a man who, in my opinion, if Jay-Z is considered the greatest rapper ever, and every time he's on a song with Scarface, he gets lapped, then we might, we might need to rediscuss yep. who's the greatest rapper of all time because Scarface not only puts it down, man, he outshines anybody he's on a track with. And, I mean, we're talking about Jay-Z who could be the greatest rapper ever, and Scarface just annihilates him and eliminates him. I mean, I, I just, when it comes to Southern rap, Scarface is the reason why Southern rap is where it's at. Bun B, UGK, you know, Pimp C, you know, rest in peace, Pimp C. These guys basically held rap down when nobody even paid attention to the South. No one paid attention to it, and uh, and like I said, it, 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 they the, the, the Ghetto Boys at first, and then and then obviously Scarface with a solo career, and, and and it doesn't matter which variation the Ghetto Boys you want to go at, whether it had Willie D or didn't, uh, it was still all great in my opinion. But I mean, really, no one was representing the South, and I mentioned Positive K, and he's from New York, but he got played. People thought he was from down south, Brian, because he wore LSU gear in his video, and I'm like, that guy's not from the South. <laughs> That guy's not no. Southern. He's not. He's not. He's just representing LSU colors for whatever reason. And Ghetto Boys really kind of laid the foundation for everything to come. UGK was able to come out. Shout out to Port Arthur, Texas, by the way, home of UGK. And then they kind of they they were able to get on. And uh, we can talk about DJ Screw at a later time and the influence of the mixtape and the, the screwed and chop sound. I think that we probably need to save that for another time. But they kind of kept it afloat. And, and for me, when I talk about greatest, the, the greatest rappers of all time, for me, it's always between Ice Cube and Scarface. Like, it, those are my two guys. And then probably Biggie and Pac 
And those are the guys for, for me. And Scarface, look, when you listen to Face, he tells a story every single time, Brian. It's always yes. a story. It's not, it's, there's no filler. There's always a purpose. There's always a thought to it. And there, there's really no one like him in that way that is always track after track. He's telling stories, man. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he kind of started that 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 whole. Let me tell, like, I'm gonna vividly paint this picture. And you're gonna see. It, you're gonna take this walk with me. So when he raps on my block, and he tells you about his block. You can visually see these things taking place. Yep. If it's Mister Mister Scarface, I mean, and it's like no matter what song he's on, like I say the dude bodies it, man. I'm like, you know, he, he's on a song with Can't Be Life with Jay Z, and I'm like, he's telling a story of how you know his best friend's kid is the one that passes, and I'm like, he doesn't even know what to do because he can talk about his life. But why do that and ruin a song when I can talk about a real situation that happened instead of me bragging on what I've accomplished? Now I'm going to talk about my friend losing his kid because that hurt me as if I lost my kid. So I'm like, that, that, yep. that's Scarface, man. I'm like, that's why he's able to get on the track with anybody and just be like, okay, let me fast forward your verse. I'll come back to it later. Let me see what Face Mob is talking about. And one of my greatest songs ever, and to be honest, I'm glad my wife may not hear this podcast because I have used this tactic before I got married. He gets on the song, and it's called Cut Faces. And if you want to Google the real version of that, you can Google the real name of it. But it's called Cut Faces. And he's on the song, and he talks about how he walks into a lingerie shop. He sees a lady. He's interested in her. So he tells her to try something on for him. She does. He buys it, walks out. So now, in the night that he walks out, she chases behind him. And somehow, some way, he ends up hicking up with her. You know what? That sounds like a good idea, Face. Let me try that. <laughs> It doesn't work out as well for 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 you when uh, you try that. Uh, obviously, and here's the thing: I always tell people about Scarface. Your favorite rapper from the last 25 years, Scarface is probably his. Yeah, Scarface is the guy rapper. that he yeah. probably respects more than anyone else. Uh, and Jay Z really tops that list. He absolutely adores Scarface. So Houston holds it down, and then comes the ATL and Outkast. Southern playlist at Cadillac Music drops Andre and Big Boy. Uh, look, I, I know we like to bag on Atlanta for sports reasons, right? But when the Dungeon family came out with their music there starting around 94, 95, it changed, man. It, 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 you, you can look at that point, Brian, and say it changed rap music because from that point on, Everyone wanted to be Southern. Southern playlist and Cadillac music is that one, man. I mean, like, if you're going to take a, you know, if you're going to take these albums and you're going to say, man, what part of the South that people actually start paying attention that these dudes can rhyme? It wasn't Face because people understood that Face had the slow flow. But Big Boy right. and Outkast, you know, Big Boy and Drake came through, and they could actually flow like them dudes on the East Coast. So it wasn't like you were going to get on there and spit the little fast lyrics. They could do that if you want to do that. You want a slow flow? They can do that. You want to make good songs, good music, make party music? They could do that. Whatever you wanted, they could provide, and they could provide it on a level in which you couldn't match. And that's why, you know, they are who they are. Like right now, many people will say Andre 3000 is the greatest lyricist that, you know, has ever touched the microphone. And early in the days in Outcast, Big Boy used to lap him. So, I mean, it's like, it's used crazy to. how great they were together. Yeah. So, I mean, some will say he still does on some, on some tracks, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's crazy, man. Like, you know, they, they, 
they are that group to me. If there's a Southern group that you could say, man, like, you know, who are the pioneers as far as group Southern hip-hop? It's, that's why it was so magical when Outkast and UGK hooked up later on for International Players Anthem because I'm like, oh. it's two of the greatest groups of the South coming together on one song. And in fact, today, if nobody else does it, I'm going to do it again. I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. It was on an old Twitter account that I had. I basically put up each member of the people that were on that song and actually had the best verse. And every single answer was different. Every single one, because the, the the love for UGK is monumental as well. And for Outkast, the, the thing that I always loved about them, they were always evolving. Brian, it, like they they could have they could have easily because they broke through and got played on MTV and and had found commercial success with their debut album. Andre, I want to say, was only like eighteen years old when they did that. And Big Boy was a few years older. They were still so young. They could have done the same thing, right? They, they could have made the same record over and over again. They didn't. Like, they come back out, and they make a record that's about relationships and about space and about anything other than what they were rapping about on the first album. And they constantly were evolving, man. And, and not many cats did that or still do that. No, I mean, even in the idea that how can you make a double disc and rarely do songs together and it still bangs? Because I'm like, when they did the speaker box Love Below, I'm like, how do you do this? It's like Andre's doing his thing, Big Boy's doing his thing. We make a few songs together, but we're just going to put this double album out and yet it still bangs. And it's almost like... It's almost like the video that they made for, uh, I want to say, Roses. It's like the idea of they're doing like this Greek-style gang fight on, on their album to see who has the actual better album that's inside of one album. Nobody does this type of stuff. And I'm like, when they say no. that they're thinking like light years ahead, that's exactly what it is, man. I'm like, Outkast, again, to me, the premier group from the South. Premier group, and no one's ever really come close to their level, right? And, and uh, you, you could – when – you, you look at what they were able to accomplish. People have kind of flirted with it a little bit, but no one's ever come to their level. And I, I'll argue this as well. I think it's a good thing that they don't make music anymore. I, 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 I respect the decision from Andre because if Andre's not feeling it, I don't want half-ass. Right, Brian? I, right. I don't because right. Right. They, they, they raise the bar so high. So if Andre's not feeling it and he's just not wanting to, to, to do that anymore, I can respect that because I'd rather him do that and us not have any new content from Outkast than him just kind of do it together to get a paycheck and do half-ass. Like, I, I respect that. I respect the fact that they decided, you know what, we're going to part ways and we're just not going to make any music anymore and people keep clamoring for it and I understand it and so do I. I would love for them to get reunited and blow our minds with another great record. But I'm okay with if they don't do it because they have standards and they're not they're not going to settle, man. They're just not going to do that. If, if I'm not mistaken on this, and I could be wrong because I you know I, I do a lot of this from memory. I usually don't try to research stuff before I go into it uh, unless it's like sports related, so I can make sure I have the stats and stuff you know correct. But if it's if I'm not mistaken, they are the only Southern act to ever go diamond on an album. If I'm not mistaken on that, I think they're the only Southern Southern group maybe that that's only went that's only went diamond. I mean, that just goes to show you how far and above they are above everybody else. And, again, I'm not going to take anything away from the hot boys here in New Orleans. I'm not going to take it away from 8-Ball MJG up in Memphis or even Bundy and UGK. Nobody has done what Outkast has done, and I don't think it will ever be duplicated. No, and what Outkast also did, it, it opened up the floodgates for Southern rap. After they came out, 
UGK finally gets some recognition with Riding Dirty, an album that as uh, uh, Jay-Z absolutely uh, adores as well. They finally blow up and get commercial success. 8-Ball and MJG do their thing in Memphis. Also, shout out to 3-6 Mafia. Chapter 2 World Domination is an absolute great record. (laughs) Anytime you can talk about a a, a litany of different things that 3-6 Mafia did on that record, from Late Night Tip to Tear the Club Up to the devil trying to possess them, it's all over the place, and it is perfect at that time. I want to say that was like 97, 98. But they opened up the floodgates. Also for Atlanta, Ludacris, T.I., everyone else came through afterwards. But it also kind of opened up the door, right, Brian, for New Orleans to finally kind of shine. And it happens right after one another with no limit and cash money. You're the New Orleans native. You're the guy that represents the East Bank. What was that like when that started to kind of happen? Mystical had already had a debut album that had come out. I remember he wore the the, the Grambling jersey with, with the purple on. If I it, the album cover was purple, if I remember, like he had already came out. But no limit. You know, P spent time in California. He comes back home. He takes the money. We all know the story, and then gets things started that way. What was that like being in New Orleans for that happening? Man, I, I could tell you this, man. As a native New Orleanian, especially, you know, one that, that really dug the music scene, I, I don't think there was ever a more proud moment than me being able to see these dudes on TV, you know, like like legitimately on TV. Because, of course, <laughs> you know, we know, what, we, we know what Master P was able to do. He was able to basically tell, you know, Jimmy Iovine, if you're willing to give me a million dollars, then I must be worth $40 million. That's probably one of the greatest quotes I think any human has ever said, much less a rapper from the South who really didn't have the, the formal knowledge to kind of be able to back that up. He just basically bet on himself and he won. And with that being said, he didn't lie. So now he's the, the, the greatest selling artist ever in the world because of his No Limit record label. And then, of course, you had Cash Money come through. And for Cash Money, it was a No Limit kind of hit like an earthquake because they, they were able to take the, 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 the East Coast love and the West Coast love and, and you know, the, the, the Down South love and package all of that together. Cash Money didn't yeah. have that option because, you know, Baby didn't live in California for that time or whatever like that. He didn't have a chance to kind of open up for Pac and get to meet these people. Baby did it from the mud, man, you know, with, with him and, and, and Slim. You know, those guys, what they did was they basically said, you know what, we're not going to worry about the East Coast. We're not going to worry about the West Coast. We're not going to worry about Midwest or up North. We're just going to stick to New Orleans, and we're going to put everything we can into making this New Orleans sound what it is. So they had UNLV. They hit. And, I mean, we're talking about UNLV's uh, Uptown for Life album, basically selling almost 400,000 units independent and local. So that's, that's paying attention. Then Juvenile comes right behind that. They, you know, he gets rid of UNLV because they couldn't keep the act together for whatever reason. He gets rid of UNLV. He starts it all over with kids and Juvenile. And he calls them the hot boys. Yep. And then he hits with Juvenile. And Juvenile Soldier Rag sells, I believe, almost 500,000 just in the South. And for people that don't understand how great Soldier Rags was, that was the epitome of what you want an album to sound like when it comes to sudden sound. Gritty, grimy, I will bust you in your head and smile while I'm doing it. Then drop off and go to the car because I got a $1,000 Rolex on and a Mazda 929. And we all believe in Mazda 929 are expensive cars and they're not. They're trash. But you couldn't tell them <laughs> a Mazda 929 and my lady wasn't a great car. <laughs> Hell, I thought oh, it was you know, so I, I mean, wanted like one, too. I wanted one, too. Exactly. They made you think that, you know, a Toyota, you know, Camry was like one of the greatest cars you could ever own. 
like, no, man, that's not what it was. But they made you take a little toy on the Land Rover. Go get you one. Uh, Land Cruiser. So I'm like, these cars, you know, they made basic cars sound like luxury items. And they just drove around, man, and they just said, you know, we're just going to talk about all the money we're making. And we're going to make this hit. And then they, they, find, they finally got their major deal. And when Juvenile dropped 400 degrees, everything changed. Oh, man. Because I remember, you know, hearing the story of guys in New York. And they, they want to break high all over the place. And, of course, how here locally, we all know what that means. You, know, you say something and you say hi after as if you're asking somebody a question, even though you're telling them something. So with that being right. said, Juvenile drops high, and they played in the New York club. And the New York club booed the hell out of the song. They were mad at the DJ. They were almost ready to riot because they didn't want it. Two weeks later, Jay-Z hears the song, jumps on it. They do the remix. And Jay-Z didn't ask Juvenile to do the remix. He loved the song so much, he wanted to do a remix to it. He does yeah. the remix. They play it in the club two weeks later. People immediately erupt. They love the song. Now they're fighting and carrying on and doing all kind of nonsense because that's how much of an impact in one month the song I had made to where people were like, oh, my goodness, you know what? I'm not from New Orleans, but we kind of live just like that. We live that type of lifestyle. And when Juvenile drops 400 degrees, if they're if, – it's kind of crazy because if you think about 1998, and I've referenced this a couple of times, if you think about what albums were dropped in 98, for Juvenile to go four times platinum in 1998 was crazy because Outkast dropped, DMX dropped, Jay-Z dropped. Those alone, yep. 8-Ball and MJG, all of these people are dropping albums, and they, you know, they actually, Juvenile drops, goes four times platinum off of, off of 400 Degrees. And, and it was crazy because... They both were able to, both No Limit and Cash Money were able to blow up at the same time, practically, which was crazy that New Orleans had not one but two. Now, obviously, there was some beef between the acts. It stems back to UNLV with Dragum, obviously, the diss track against Mystical, but that was before Mystical was even really part of No Limit, right? But that kind of carried over with the beef between the two. Well, from what I understand, I could be speaking a little bit out of turn, and maybe I'm saying some stuff that I shouldn't say, but it was a little bit further past the mystical, you know, kind of cash money beef. And from what I understand, it had a lot to do with just the, the neighborhood that they were from. Of course, you know, Master P and his guys, and those limit mainly being from the Third Wall Calio projects, and of course, cash money being kind of from the Magnolia Melphamine area. Those two guys, you know, those two factions really didn't too much care for each other as far as outside of music. And I think that sprinkled over a little. And for me, the greatest disservice we've ever seen is those two factions not making money together. Because who knows oh, what could have happened if Cash Money and No Limit ever came together on a song. Who was your favorite artist from each label back in the day? Juvenile was my, Juvenile was my favorite. I mean, you talked about Scarface and telling stories. Juvenile does a lot of that in his music as far as telling stories. It's, you know, not on the same level as Scarface. But definitely, he does. He likes to tell a story a little bit and how he goes with it. You know, I think uh, even on his his first kind of like you know, I guess introduction to being a Cash Money member, he paints the picture on Retaliation that was just like I'm like, oh my goodness, I love this. Give me more of whatever the hell that is because that dude that is it, it can't be stopped. And you got to remember, Juvenile came from the bounce music era when he was saying bounce to the Juvenile, and all of a sudden now you're telling stories. Yeah, I want that part of you. And of course, when it came to No Limit. For me, it was a little bit of a tie. It depends on when you want to talk about the area. You want to talk about before Mystical left or after he left. But when Mystical was there, he might have been my favorite No Limit rapper. And then after that, it was a guy who I believe he should be right around the time when he should be getting his release. It's uh, Matt 
from No Limit, who I think is probably one of the most underrated guys from No Limit, but definitely one of the best. I'm going to let you have the mic here too, Brian, because I know how you feel about a certain female rapper there on the No Limit label and how she kind of gets disrespected when it comes to talking about female rappers. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, I think, man, not many people will say this, but to me, in my opinion, and I, I think I got the stats to back this up, Mia X is the greatest female rapper of all time. And I think if you look at the fact that she penned her own material, if she was on a level surrounded by dudes who could go, man, I mean, some of the best fitters, when you're talking about, you know, Mystical, Mac, Scene, you know, these guys were all on a track with Mia X at the same time, and she would absolutely drop bombs on these albums. She's been on a song with other women before. She had the song with Foxy Brown, absolutely dog-walked her on a song together. Lil' Kim was afraid to get on the song with her. So, I mean... These are you know the best females in, in that you can think of wouldn't even get on songs with me or X or got dog walk either way you want to go with it. And of course, now you look at the newer age females, the Cardi B's, the Nicki Minaj's and all the rest of these young ladies, uh Magda Stallion has a new one that's out now. None of these girls could touch me or X, man, with what she was doing. We're talking about grimy, gritty, I'ma give you everything you want, and more and I can still be ladylike when I do it. Unladylike diva was probably the greatest catchphrase ever for a female because that's exactly what she was. And believe me when I say all you got to do is take one listen to her. If you listen to the song, make them say, uh, then that is a rap with all you need to know on Mia X because she absolutely just, I mean, just bodied that track, man. And, I mean, I think, to be honest, she was better than a couple of those dudes on that song as well. So, I mean, Mia X is no slouch. She is the greatest female rapper we've ever seen. No disrespect to Queen Latisse for MC Light. Uh, none of the ladies that came before. Mia X is the best. Point blank, period. You ain't going to change my mind. You can debate me if you want to. Or you can debate your ball, <laughs> my grandma. Not going to happen. I don't care. Mia X is the best. Uh, let's briefly, before we wrap things up here on our conversation about 90s rap music, brother we got to talk a little bit about Miami. And for the longest time, it was just known, South Florida was just known uh, in hip-hop circles as, you know, Two Life Crew, right? And it, that's what it was known for. But in the late 90s, Trick Daddy and Trina and the Slip and Slide crew came out. Being a guy from New Orleans, how did you feel? Were you feeling what they were doing there in South Florida? Yeah, I've always kind of taken a, 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 a little bit of a love towards South Florida because they remind me a lot of people from New Orleans. You know, they're kind of a little bit yep. rolled off like us. They have a little bit of, you know, not kind of technically a country accent, but it's kind of a little bit of their own little accent. They act a little weird. So, I mean, for me, you know, my, Florida and New Orleans, are, especially South Florida and Miami area, and New Orleans are always kind of hand-in-hand when it comes to how they, they act just in general. So, yeah, I definitely took to it. I'm not going to say I was totally in love with the, the entire Slip and Slide movement, but I definitely liked the way that, you know, they kind of they added that little version of bounce to it, you know, that little Slip and Slide, they had the Miami swing to it. Uncle Luke started it. They took it to a different level and kind of put a little bit of the, 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 the coolness to it. And Uncle Luke was just straight in your face. I'm just going to let him shake out all over the place. And Slip and Slide with Trick Daddy and Trent kind of said, okay, we're going to take that and we're just going to make it a little bit more smooth, maybe a little bit more PG, and we're going to make some money off of it. I ain't got no problem with that at all. And Trick loved the kids. You can't forget about that either. Uh, my favorite, my favorite trick. I have two. Do you remember when they used to have that show on ESPN, Brian, where they do like uh, the guy, the cats that play Madden, right? And they would go and hang yeah. out with their favorite player, that, and and they would wear the jersey, right? And they go hang out with them. Well, most of them they go and hang out in their big mansion, right, or at the at the complex. Well, this one guy loved Edron James, and people don't realize this. Edge is from. 
not a great part in Miami, right? And correct? Right. Right. So he goes and hangs out and this guy goes up and he's just you know, he's wearing his Edron James Arizona Cardinals jersey and he goes up and and and, and it's that corner spot, it's a corner house that Edge and Trick Daddy owned. And he had to go play inside the house. You can find it on YouTube. Had to go play inside the house while Trick Daddy and a bunch of his guys were mean mugging him because he was whooping Edge on the Madden game. And that cat looked so scared, man. He looked so scared. And it was just like, oh, Trick. And then another time they did a, they they did that. Uh, remember when Diddy did the voter die thing? That was his big yeah. thing, right? Voter yeah, die, voter, voter die, die campaign. So, yeah. They had the voter die campaign. So they're doing like this telethon trying to get people to call in and doing everything like that. And, and Diddy just walks up and they got Trick Daddy to help. And he's he was like on the corner. He was on the end. And 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 Diddy goes up to him and says, Oh man, you yeah, yeah, and you're gonna do your thing and, and you're gonna go vote too. And you just see the scar on, on his face. Trick Daddy looks up at him, he's like, Man, I can't vote. <laughs> like you because Trick Daddy don't listen. Have you met me? Have you met me? Get out of here. Dancing somewhere. Uh, Let's wrap it up with this, man. We're starting to close up shop. I I know it's hard, and and you took part in the uh, top ten, that that official hip-hop thing that we were doing on Twitter. Uh, Brian, you actually nominated me for it to kind of – you just post the album cover of your favorite favorite records. Um, Break it down, man. Can you give me your top ten? You don't have to put them in order, but just your your, your ten favorite – your your favorite hip hop records, your favorite rap records, man. Man, it, it it's hard, man. I know, of course, we got you know Ice Cube and his death certificate is up there. I'm gonna put Juvenile, 400 Degrees. Of course, we got Pox, uh, uh, Me Against the World. That's definitely on that list for me. Biggie. I, I think I'm gonna put both big albums on there. I think Ready to Die and Life After Death. Both of them are just absolutely phenomenal. Jay Z's Reasonable Doubt. Uh, gosh, man, I, I, I even lost count where I am right now. But, I mean, there, there's a bunch of them that I could definitely say that the outcast, of course, uh, uh, Quimini is definitely up there, man. I, that's one of the best rap albums I've ever heard in my life. Uh, goodness. Ooh, where am I, six or seven right now? <laughs> oh, man, uh, let me think. Uh, of course, Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, don't want to forget that one. Uh, Dr. Dre's uh, Chronic, that definitely, you know, is a time capsule album for me, man. Oh, goodness. Trying to think of what else out there that I could definitely say, man. You know what? That was a a great hip hop album. I, I might even put Eminem's, maybe Marshall Mathers on that. And I'm not even the biggest Eminem fan, but I got to give him respect when it went where it's due, man. That's one of. I mean, that he pinned the hell out of that one. Um, I'm trying to think because I, I usually do it about regions. Uh, let's see, Midwest, Kanye West. For as much as he may not write his own material, that 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 one of his. Uh, or my, maybe I want to say it's late registration or graduation. One of those two. Uh, definitely, you know, one of the best hip hop albums. It might be Late Registration. That was a great one. And it was. Uh, goodness, oh gosh, where am I now? I probably lost count. Probably about <laughs> eight nine at this point. Uh, like Bone Thugs and Harmony. How the hell could I forget that one? Their very first album. Uh, Bone Thugs. Uh, uh, that one. No, yeah, we didn't Bone even talk. We, that we, was. Yeah, we. Yeah, we didn't even talk about uh, uh, Bone Thugs. That was a, a, an album that dropped. Easy E obviously discovered them, put them on. And uh, Bone Thugs representing Cleveland, Ohio, a little Midwest love to them. I think later Crucial Conflict and obviously Common out of Chicago as well got got some love. For me, for me, Brian, I, I, I did my list, and it, it was Ice Cube's death certificate, uh, Outcasts, uh, AT Lens, 
Uh, Raekwon, only built for Cuban links. Notorious Big, Ready to Die, The Roots, Illidel Half-Life, Scarface, The Diary, Wu-Tang Clan, Enter the 36 Chambers, Tupac, Me Against the World. I'd probably put All Eyes on Me there as as well. Dr. Dre, The Chronic, Too Short, Album Number 10, Love Short Dog. And then and then for me also, you got to have N.W.A. straight out of Compton. you got to have Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation a Million to Hold Us Back. Gang Star for me, Hard to Earn, Old Dirty Bastards, debut record as well. Uh, Southern Catalyst, uh, Playlistic Music as well. I, it's just, you know, it, when, when, when you and I were doing the list on Twitter and we would reveal one, it got like it caused me stress, man. It caused me to have anxiety because I was like, what am I going to have to leave off? I can only do 10? I can only do 10? And that's what inspired me to, to, <laughs> to talk to you, brother, to be able to do this podcast, man. No, I'm wishing right there, man, because even just now, like, I'm running through, and I'm like, I know I'm forgetting something. I know I'm forgetting something. Then you started naming yours, and I'm like, yeah, I wanted that one. So I'm like, it's hard <laughs> to pin down 10 when you're talking about, first, you got each region that's, that's dropped their own version. And I'm like, man, like, it, it's really, really hard to pick 10 albums that you could say. If you were only stuck, if somebody had to say you stuck with 10 albums, pick 10, and you can never listen to the rest, it'd be hard, man. Like, I'd probably lose my mind even hard. trying to pick 10. <laughs> Brian, man, I appreciate you making out the time uh, for me. Uh, look, we got this downtime, so what is no better time than now to kind of go down memory lane and just what I consider to be the golden era of rap music. That would be the 90s because you had East Coast, West Coast, and the Dirty South all represented, all putting out classics. And I appreciate you uh, doing this with me, brother, and uh, thanks again. Man, you know, I'm always, no matter what it is, brother, I'm always a phone call away. Just hit me up whenever you need to, and maybe one day we'll get into another discussion about some of the stuff that we missed on today. Oh, because you know, you know we're going to listen to this, and we're going to be like, damn, we forgot to talk yep. about this, and we forgot about we, we nearly left off Bone Thugs, man. We're doing people a disservice, man. Uh, but, Brian, brother, appreciate your time, man. No worries, but man, have yourself a great one, brother. Stay safe out there, man, and stay isolated until this whole nonsense is kind of cooled off and it's over with. That's Brian Bienemy. My man took the time out to walk with me down memory lane, so to speak. One of the best in the business, talking sports, talking Saints, talking Pelicans, talking all things New Orleans. But my man is one of the best when it comes to hip-hop culture and rap music. Woo, finally, it took us long enough. It took us it literally double-digit podcast to finally get around to doing one about rap music here on the rap game. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode. And as Brian said, y'all be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Stay safe. Practice the social distancing right now. And just keep listening. We'll talk to you later.